Welcome to Woke Isn't Enough, a podcast created by two women of color who think that it's time to move collectively beyond checking the boxes when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Jess Aiden Lee, and I'm here with my colleague, Fiona Oliphant, and we are the founders of Healing Equity United. Hey, Cassie. Hey, Fiona. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's been a long time since we've heard from you. You want to take some time to reintroduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, I'd love to. Hi, everyone. I'm Cassie Whitebread. I'm the senior consultant at Healing Equity United. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a second generation Chinese American. I also identify as mixed race or biracial. I'm originally from New Jersey, though I call Philadelphia at home. That's where I have my master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania, and I used to be a middle school science teacher. Um, And when I'm not working with Justin Fiona at Healing Equity United, I also serve as the education director for a nonprofit in Seattle called Seattle Works. Thank you for that brief intro. And when you were speaking, you talked a little bit about your identity in terms of your racial identity and and, and how you present yourself to the world. That's really relevant because today we're talking about mixed race identity and individuals and how our society perceives them and, and, and interacts with them and values them or not. And so do you want to start us off with um, a little more data around that? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, Yeah. So in terms of the multiracial population within the United States, it's changed pretty considerably since the last census in 2010. Um, It was measured at 9 million people back in 2010, and we are now at 33.8 million people in 2020, which is the 276 percent increase in folks who identify as multiracial. And as as someone who is mixed, I'm really excited to be talking with you, Fiona, about this topic today because it comes along with a lot of feelings and processing in terms of um, identity. Uh, For listeners, just to give a heads up um, on this topic, I'll be using the term mixed or multiracial interchangeably. And when I'm using that, I'm referring to Um, folks whose parents or ancestors are of more than one ethnicity or race. Um, And again, to give listeners a better understanding of my perspective on the topic, um, I am mixed race. I'm half Chinese and half white, um, mostly German and Irish, uh, though I've never done a DNA test to confirm this. Um, But I think it's important to give that context because uh, being mixed uh, with a BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, person of color identity and white identity is very different than those folks who may be mixed uh, with two or more of those um, BIPOC backgrounds, ethnicities, or races. Absolutely, absolutely. And so let's start talking about how mixed race folks sometimes feel compelled to choose one race or another. You are this or you are are that. And then overlay that with how that societal requirement has changed over time. We know that Barack Obama is half black, half white, and he identifies as a black man, right? 
Um, he acknowledges that he has a white mother or had a white mother, but but he identifies as a black man through and through. You want to give us some more context around that? Yeah. Yeah. So as we know, race is a social construct. And um, just in terms of race over time, that, that has changed so drastically depending on um, you know, who might be included in a certain race based on the U.S. census, right? So at certain times, for example, um, uh, Asian American uh, Pacific Islander folks were considered um, one identity at times um, that they were considered within the white category. Um, in terms of German, um, sorry, uh, Irish identifying folks, there was a time where they were not considered to be a part of the white identity within the census in our, our past history. And so, you know, I think for, for mixed folks, there's a unique experience compared to folks who solely identify as one identity where we feel like we need to fit nicely into one or the other boxes, right? It wasn't until I think recently that we were able to choose on the census multiple boxes for our, our racial and ethnic identities. Um, and so, you know, we often feel like we are this in this in-between or we're othered. Um, Vox uh, somewhat recently put out an article called The Loneliness of Being Mixed Race in America, um, where they mentioned that mixed people have um, historically been targets of fear and, con and confusion from suspicions of mixed people passing as white under Jim Crow um, to accusations of not embracing one's race enough, which was something that Kamala Harris um, experienced on multiple sides for the past election, being a woman of Black and South Asian descent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And who claimed her as their own, right? Mm -hmm. You know, on one side, Black folks are like, yes, a Black woman in, you know, working in the White House as, as the VP. And then on the other side, all of the, they see aunties saying, yes, finally a South Asian in the White House, right? Um, but the more nuanced and, and complicated reality is that she is both. Yeah. She is both and. Yeah. And so let's talk about the societal challenges of being both. What? have you learned about the challenges of being both and how to navigate those spaces in terms of societal value and pressure? Yeah, I think for someone who is fairly racially ambiguous, um, my identity has been a fairly intrusive conversation starter for majority of my life. If I had a dollar for every time that I was asked, what are you? Or a different version <laughs> of that question, I'd have at least a few hundred dollars more in my name. Um, and my own identity has shifted over time as an Asian American presenting person growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood, there was a need for assimilation, um, which I also learned from my mother. Um, and then, you know, I think for mixed folks, it's, it's very easy for, it can be very easy for our BIPOC identity to kind of elapse if we are not actively cultivating a community while living in predominantly or spending most of our time in predominantly white spaces. Um, I didn't grow up with many connections to uh, my Chinese identity, 
my parents mostly cooked, you know, American dinners, right? Hard shell taco Tuesday, spaghetti nights. Um, and my mom's side of the family um, was on the opposite end of the country. And so I, I saw them maybe three or four times a year during my K through 12 years. Um, but in that time, you know, as I was spending time with my white peers, I was still considered as, you know, that perpetual foreigner, um, experiencing different levels of racism from my teachers, from my peers, the, the people that I spent time with. And as I've gotten older, you know, I think, and away from my small hometown, I've made greater efforts to embrace my, my heritage. And honestly, it's something that I wish that could have been a part of my, my childhood. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's really, you know, our listeners can't see me nodding and smiling at you as you were speaking <laughs> because that phrase racially ambiguous. So for listeners who don't know, I have three children who are half black and half white. My eldest um, was into uh, child modeling for a, a fairly prestigious agency in New York City. And they wanted her at some point to shift from doing exclusively um, photo shoots to doing commercial work. And the phrase that stopped me in my tracks from the, a representative of the agency was that they said, because she's, you know, racially ambiguous and we can place her everywhere. And as a parent, I was like, actually, she's not racially ambiguous because we know exactly <laughs> what she is, right? And I don't know that I want to purposefully put my child, continue to put my child in a space where she is going to be met with that, you know, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Long story short, we pulled her. But but just to hear you use the same phrase mm -hmm. more than 20 years later, mm -hmm. it's like, why is that still a thing, racial ambiguity? Um, that same child has grown up to, you know, say that she now identifies as a black woman with a white father. Mm -hmm. Right? Being mixed race that no longer serves her, she acknowledges that, um, you know, her siblings can call themselves mixed race, right? Um, and genetically, that's what she is. Well, genetically, that's not what she is, because race is not based in science. It's a social construct. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, she is half black, half white. She acknowledges that. But she's like, I'm a black woman. Yeah. I'm treated like a black woman. When you were talking about, you know, um, the prejudices and the challenges and the varied forms of oppression that you faced in your community um, and in school growing up, right? Uh, being mixed race does not shield you from that, mm -hmm. right? Um, it might take on a different manifestation, but, but you're not shielded. What are your thoughts about all of that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you share um, your kiddos just uh, kind of shift in how, how she identifies. I, 
I find that I have fluidity in how I share my identity on a day-to-day basis, on a space-to-space basis. Um, I will say that, you know, there are still times when I am in, you know, majority white spaces where in sharing my identity, I will simply say um, API, APA, or Asian American and leave it at that and hope that I'm not going to get further questions. Um, When I'm in, you know, a predominantly BIPOC space, or I'm in a space where I know that there are other mixed folks, I feel more comfortable to be able to open up and share, you know, I am, I am mixed race. Um, Here's what my identity is. And, you know, it's something that feels somewhat vulnerable because there has been such a fraught history of, Mm -hmm. of just how, how we identify. And um, it's almost as if I feel that, you know, not everyone deserves to hear me explain the details, particularly white folks because of the harm that's been done to me in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I would love to hear more about um, feeling more vulnerable, being more vulnerable in global majority spaces and being more willing to share your mixed race identity. Um, Because, you know, some folks say it's easier in those spaces to just claim that particular identity, right? Um, Because, like you said, the history in this country has been so fraught with you know, also, you know, we, we also have to put into context the uh, white supremacy framework of, you know, you all, we're going to give you a, a, a bit more privilege. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you a bit more access. And those who are not identified as mixed race and are members of the global majority, having internalized that narrative and then blaming or judging or castigating mixed race folks. So I I find it interesting that you say you feel more comfortable sharing and being vulnerable in those spaces. You want to discuss that a little more? Yeah. And, you know, something that you said um, reminded me just why I think it's so important to name that I, I do have a mixed identity, right? Acknowledging that I I recognize I have the privilege of having a white father and that allowed me to have, you know, X, Y, Z privilege in my, in my childhood. And, you know, in terms of to this day, the fact that I am somewhat racially ambiguous and lighter skinned, right. Talking about colorism, that's something that, you know, isn't inextricably um, woven into, you know, the, the conversation about mixed identities. Um, And I think that's why, I, I think that's why there's a, a level, a deeper level of comfort for me in, in naming that mixed identity within the BIPOC space. I, I recognize um, that colorism is a thing. I recognize that um, the way in which white supremacy is embedded within our society creates somewhat of a racial hierarchy. Um, and therefore, I know that I have to leverage the privilege that I do have to be in solidarity with um, other folks within the BIPOC identity. And I think, you know, in, in naming that, in naming outright the, the mixed identity, I'm hoping that um, there's an opportunity to kind of prevent the sense of rejection. Um, I feel like I've had a, a number of conversations with folks who identify as mixed 
feeling somewhat rejected by our BIPOC siblings because of the mixed identity, right? You are not X, Y, Z race enough. Um, and so, you know, I, th I think there's just this, this sense of like, hey, I recognize that my experience is different than yours if you are of only one race, of only one ethnicity. Um, and that's why I bring that forward in, into the spaces that I'm, I'm occupying. It's really, it's so amazing that you share the same thing. My, my children are a bit younger than you, right? And one is still in high school, one is entering high school. And, you know, for one child, he has always been mixed. He's called himself mixed, you know, calls himself Jumeric. No, he's called himself Dutch Aiken. So like Dutch, American, and Jamaican. Um, and it's only recently that I have seen a shift in him because of his years of um, experiencing uh, oppression, right? Like white folks are not claiming him. Right, like <laughs> they're not saying, "Oh, come on into the fold." <laughs> in a, in a quite the opposite, so he faces, you know, racism and colorism and things of that nature. And so, as he's gotten older, uh, it, it's quite interesting to see that he's like, "My lot is becoming more and more." Um, firmly entrenched in identifying exclusively as BIPOC, exclusively as as Black. He, he still identifies as mixed race, but if you want to see him giving head nods to people when something shady goes down in class, it's going to be to other BIPOC folks, right? It's like there's that natural affinity. And I think that um, what you were just saying about walking that fine line between acknowledging the privilege that you might have, but then also um, lifting up that shared oppression mm -hmm. and saying, when I come into this space, I acknowledge I have some other privileges that you might not have, but look, this is the, 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 form, the varied forms of oppression that we face together yeah. in, in solidarity. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to exist in that duality, right, of experiencing microaggressions and racism, um, while also, you know, acknowledging that there is, that we are experiencing it, it at different levels. Um, it's, a, it's a hard thing to balance. And I think, you know, and I'm, I'd be curious, Fiona, to hear my, when I was growing up, you know, my parents maybe talked with me about my identity a couple times, but it was never on like a, a very deep level. And I think we're as a country specifically in a, in a very different place in terms of our collective understanding around, um, you know, the need to talk about race. Um, when did you start talking about identity with your kiddos? Oh, when they were toddlers. Like oh. I remember specifically um taking scoops of ice cream and putting a vanilla scoop and a chocolate scoop and 
having them eat both scoops and say, oh, isn't this yummy? Just like fill in the blank child's name. You know, you're a little bit of this and a little bit of that and totally sweet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the context, the language changed as they grew older, but I wanted I, I wanted them to know right away, right away, um, that they should not fall into society's pressure to be one or the other. That was up to them to decide how they identified. I would tell them and help them recognize both. Um, but yeah, I started really early. Oh, no, <laughs> I'm tired of me talking about it. <laughs> no, I love that. Um... Yeah, sometimes I wonder if I had had more kind of open conversations with my parents around my identity that I would have arrived at kind of claiming that mixed identity sooner Um, and and particularly uplifting my my Asian American identity sooner. Um, And I, you know, it's I think, too, for at least for my mom, um, you know, in terms of, of the identity, I'm second generation. So my mom coming to the United States, I recognize that there was a level of you know, um, in terms of survivability, right? There was a level of assimilation that needed to happen. And that's a hard thing to break out of, especially when you continue to spend your time, majority of your time in those predominantly white spaces. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, just something that is important for folks who are listening, who might be parents of, of mixed children, um, it's so important to have conversations about their identity Um, as soon as you possibly can, whether it's, you know, from the lightest experience of having (laughs) some tasty ice cream and and talking about that in that way. And, or, you know, there are a handful of resources out there to be able to, um, you know, carefully and intentionally have some some of those deeper conversations once they're ready. Um, I think that's so important. Yeah. And I mean, I think I have to reiterate or emphasize, reemphasize how important it is because children are sponges and they can absorb what's happening around them. And so, you know, I, I will just share very briefly that we were once in a playground in New York City on the Upper West Side and some Columbia students, of uh, students of the journalism school came up to my husband, my white husband, and a white dear friend, my eldest godmother, and started asking them if they could interview the two of them because they seemed to have such a good relationship and a jovial relationship with their nanny. The assumption being me. What? Yeah, yeah. And so they didn't see our mixed race child looking back and forth trying to process i have a nanny where's my nanny who's my nanny Mm-mm-mm. right like and so to your point it's really important that we have these conversations because our kids are trying to figure out the world on their own mm-hmm. otherwise right yeah. they're having these experiences they're hearing these things and they're trying to process on their own Mm-hmm. And so it was really important, at least in that instance, that specific instance for my child to then hear, no, no, 
we don't have a nanny. That is my partner. Mm-hmm. And that is a godmother, right? And there is our mixed race child. So just to emphasize what you were saying. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, I, that makes me cringe, Fiona. <laughs> here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Let's shift away from cringing. So what do we do as a society, Cassie? What else do we do as a society? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, for anyone who might be listening who does identify as, as mixed race, um, I think it's so important to explore all parts of your identity, um, bring them to the forefront, um, learn about your ancestors on all, all sides, both sides, all sides. Um, and I think, too, you know, just trying your best to defy white supremacy's attempts to make us feel that we need to fit into these perfectly neat little boxes. Um, and also to kind of, you know, I think there's there's a connection to uh, white supremacy's attempt to paint racial identities as monoliths too. Mm-hmm. And so like knowing that, you know, whichever identity you are embracing, um, that is okay to do, mm-hmm. you are enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say, you know, for friends of mixed race folks, allowing them again to define um, their own racial and ethnic makeup, um, the the inappropriate questions or, you know, um, poking fun about, you know, whether they're enough can, while in the moment, um, you know, may seem funny and, and lighthearted, you know, it's something that your friends might have experienced in um, covert and overt ways over many, many years um, of their lives. And so just really allowing for um, folks to come as they are and come how they how, how they want to be. Um, and to, again, to be fiercely proud of that blended heritage. I think that's a wonderful way to end our um, time together. Thank you for those words of wisdom. Uh, And I appreciate our listeners. If you have any questions or any thoughts, any feedback around this topic, um, please feel free to share them with us. Take care, Cassie. Take care, Fiona.